Are you that weirdo that binges every Wives with Knives snapped and deadly wives episode? Then this is the episode for you. Welcome to Happy Hour Gets Weird. I like it. You changed it a little bit. You said episode instead of podcast. Oh, ouch. Okay. You don't have to punch yourself in the face. It's fine. I liked it. (laughs) Hi, everybody. Hi. Oh, my gosh. Welcome back, you glitter pussy people. (laughs) That was beautiful. I glitter pussy people. Is that what we're going to start calling our listeners? Yes. Glitter pussy people. And that's fantastic. And that is a. That's a non-binary pronoun. Anybody could be a glitter pussy person. That's for everybody. Yes, it is for everyone. Welcome the fuck back. Oh my gosh, we have taken a long break. Uh, I was just saying to somebody the other day, I'm on a break because we had to um, acclimate to the apocalypse. Yep, and we're here. We're as terrible as ever. (laughs) I'm I'm Tiffany. (laughs) I'm Cassie. And welcome back to Happy Hour Gets Weird. Or welcome... If this is your first time. And you were greeted by being called a glitter pussy. Person. Um, okay, so we're back and we're ready to get into it. And we're recording remotely, actually. So we're going to be extra awkward. Yeah. So just prepare yourself. If you're new here, you already know by now we suck at intros. I suck at intros, except Glitter Pussy People is pretty good. I don't know. I'm going to call everybody that now. Um, <laughs> what are you drinking today? All right. So this is pretty exciting. As you know, it's September. We're getting into fall, even though it's still kind of hot AF. But because of our story takes part in New Hampshire... And the Mm -hmm. state drink for New Hampshire is apple cider. And we're heading into fall. We're dipping our toe into the fall pool. I decided to make a apple hibiscus mule. And it is a riff on a Moscow mule. But I used ginger beer, vodka, and hibiscus apple cider. That sounds fantastic. And I love hibiscus. It's beautiful. And um, so that's what we're drinking. And it's and it's still light and summery, but it's still like a little nod to the coming season. Yeah, it's a perfect transitional cocktail. If 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 I'm anything, it's transitional. That doesn't make sense. You are the transitional (laughs) lenses of podcasters. I've said that. I've always said that about you. Oh my God. Transitional lenses are so annoying. I want to punch anybody in the face if they have transitional lenses. I actually get offended when my optometrist is like, do you want these transitional? I was like, fuck no. Do I look 95 to you? They never transition appropriately. They're in the middle of Walmart. You have sunglasses on. And then you're in the parking lot and your fucking retinas are burning. Anyways. That's what we're drinking. It's really good. You know, this is like we've been almost a month off. So like this intro is like just it's it's fucked. OK, so it's just be prepared for a fucked intro and that's it. And let's just get right into it. We are covering a Black Widow this week. More than just a Black Widow. She's a Black Widow. She's a uh, arsonist. Mm-hmm. She is a fraudster, mm-hmm. I guess would be the term. 
Mm-hmm. And she is an attempted filicide is child murder, right? She attempted she attempted that. That is correct. She didn't quite make it. Thank God. Yes, obviously. Uh, we are talking about Audrey Marie Hilly. Yes, dun, dun, dun. My source for this episode is a book titled Poison Blood, A True Story of Murder, Passion, and an Astonishing Hoax by Philip E. Ginsburg. And just so I would be an informed participant in this conversation, I browsed Wikipedia a little bit and I watched two different shows about her on ID as well as Snapped, an episode of Snapped about her, which I must say, if you feel like watching a show about her after this episode, that is the show that I would recommend. There was a ton of information in this book, so obviously due to time constraints, I'm not going to get to everything. And there's so many little things that Audrey Marie Hilly did in her life that we're just not going to cover. But if you are at all interested to learn more about this case after, watch what Tiffany watched because it the shit is crazy. And I believe the author of that book was on that episode too. Yeah. All right. And we're just going to dive straight into this twisted tale of a black widow an arsonist a fraudster just you name it she's it murderer murderer all right audrey marie hilly was born june 4th 1933 now she didn't actually go by audrey she always went by marie mm-hmm. uh, and she was born to huey and Lucille Frazier in Blue Mountain, Alabama. And it was a little... Oh, thanks. It's people in Alabama. We do have listeners in Alabama. Hello, by the way. Thank you for listening. We love you. Go Alabama. Um, They're probably, you know, cursing me right now, but they lived in... Now, Blue Mountain actually sounds like a little, beautifully quaint little mountain town. Mm Mm-hmm. So Marie and her parents lived in a small, what they call a shotgun house, which is Mm -hmm. just a really tiny house in a row amongst uh, identical other houses. And the mill, which where everybody kind of worked in Blue Mountain, built the houses and then leased them to the employees. So Huey, Marie's father, was actually an identical twin, and his twin brother was named Louie. So it was Huey and Louie. I can't handle it. This, this story's already too crazy for me. <laughs> There's a lot of characters in this play. And I just keep picturing them as ducks now, so that's great. That's what I saw. I saw cute little twin ducks running around Blue Mountain. So Marie was the only child. Now, because I am interested in astrology, I did find it quite interesting that Marie was born under Gemini which is known as a twin sign. And Geminis are very social. They're very Mm -hmm. charismatic. And they're often accused of being two-faced or having dual personalities. That's interesting. I thought it was very interesting. Huey was very sweet-natured. He was very likable. But he was kind of shitty when it came to being a father and a husband and supporting his family. Before Marie was born... 
his twin brother Louis moved to Texas, Tyler, Texas to be exact. And remember this, it's going to be on a quiz. Oh my God, I hate taking notes during a podcast. (laughs) So Huey would often leave Lucille and Marie and just disappear for months. And they wouldn't really know where he went, but the rumor was he would go to visit his twin brother, Louie, in Tyler, Texas. He would come back a few months later like nothing had happened, like he'd been in the entire time, and he'd get a job back at the mill and be around for a while and then do it over and over again. So Lucille got a job at the mill to support Marie while Huey was living his best life on the road. But good thing for Lucille is in Blue Mountain, Lucille had a bunch of siblings and her mom there. So Marie grew up with cousins and aunts and uncles, and they all lived on the same street or close within each other. So they all kind of like, they were their own kind of like community helping raise Marie while Huey was, you know, in and out, kind of flaky, nice guy, just a big flake. So one of Marie's closest cousins, her name was Robbie. And she was sporty. She was four years older. And um, she remembered Marie being the only girl besides Robbie herself. And she was the youngest of all Mm -hmm. of the cousins. There's a big group, um, two girls, mostly boys. And she was the youngest. And Robbie said, um, you know, she wore her brother's hand-me-downs and her cousin's hand-me-downs. But Marie... Um, on on the other hand, was very l- ladylike. She was she was prissy. I don't like that name, but she was or that word. She's prissy, um, and she wore only new dresses, dresses bought at a dress shop or a store, and um, really her her mom and dad really couldn't afford the kind of things she wanted, like new dolls, new purses, new dresses, new shoes, hairstyles. But they found a way to make it happen and. The rumor was they had a lot of debt um, mm-hmm. giving Marie the things, you know, giving in to her every whim, really. She was spoiled. She was very spoiled. And she was also, as you said, like the youngest of this um, cousin group. So I'm sure in this group she was also babied. Yes. If you're the youngest, you're usually kind of baby and give him what you want there so as she grew up she was always kind of spoiled and got her way yes she was very spoiled um but she was also very likable like her dad like Huey she was very charming very charismatic very sweet very likable but then she had this other side with uh, that her other side was very tenacious and she Robbie described her almost like a little tyrant um she wanted what she wanted and she would stop at nothing to get it and an an example of this is Robbie told Philip Ginsburg that when Marie was five and Robbie was nine Robbie was in bed with the measles and Marie and Lucille came over Lucille brought Robbie a little cake as a get well gift and Marie wanted some of the cake and Robbie said no I'm not I'm not sharing my cake and Marie stopped at nothing to get this cake. And it ended in Marie lunging at Robbie, biting her 
abdomen and not letting go until Robbie gave her some cake. Did she immediately get measles? Because I don't think you're allowed to physically bite people that have measles. I thought it was strange, and I was she never did get measles. Um, but it left marks for months. The marks didn't go away for months. She like really bit down. So that was just an example. She Jesus. I know that she was a ty- somewhat of a tyrant. Even her parents spared no expense when it came to food. You know, in these this little mill town, people did what they could with what they had. They didn't have the, you know, the rich, high-class foods that maybe bigger cities had. They just didn't, except for Marie at her house. Um, Robbie remembers that the first time she had a, a lamb chop was at Marie's house. And this was nearing the Depression. You know, this was like 19, late 30s. So it was, you know, depression. Not a lot of yeah. people had everything was tight everybody was tight most people in america didn't have a pot to piss in and lucille somehow managed to have a fresh bowl of fruit every week i think they took out a lot of lines of credit and racked up a lot of debt trying to cater to marie and her her standard of, of living that even as a young child, um, she had. So they didn't want to get bit in the belly. <laughs> I, honestly, I'm like, here, take my lamb chop. Please don't bite me. Uh, she would constantly throw tantrums kind of to get her way with her mom. And, um, you know, she just, that's pretty normal, but, and she had pretty much a normal childhood other than that kind of weird spoiled side um, she picked huckleberries and blackberries in the woods with her cousins. They kind of ran the neighborhood. They, um, yeah, they seemed pretty normal. She had a pretty normal childhood, in my opinion. There was really nothing that stood out in any of it that would lead you to think, oh, she's going to grow up and be A, B, and C. No. There, no. Nothing really stood out. Um, so by middle school... Um, Lucille, Marie's mother, wanted to send Marie to a better school than the one in Blue Mountain. So they moved to Anniston, which was a bigger town, and it was five miles down the road from Blue Mountain. So Marie started there, and she uh, had girlfriends when she started middle school, but pretty quickly she started to notice that boys noticed her her boys her own age and even older boys and as a freshman in high school marie was very aware of her budding sexuality and most girls 14 freshmen i mean there you are just you don't even know that you have sex appeal at that point mm-hmm. you're like um just trying to figure out how to like use a tampon well back then yeah especially you're just kind of trying to figure out who you are But Marie was very aware, and she used it to her advantage. The first boy to notice this beautiful new girl in town was a quiet, shy, kind boy, and his name was Calvin Robertson, and he would ride by her house on his bike, and Marie would um, wave to him from her porch, which it seems like really sweet, right? Really sweet and innocent, and and it was. Um, But then comes Frank Hilly. 
he also rode by her house. And he said the first time he saw 14-year-old Marie, he knew he was going to marry her. And he was four years older. He was 18 at the time. So Frank joined the Navy after high school. And he came home one leave to Anniston. And he attended a friend's wedding with Marie on his arm. And a week later, Marie Fraser became Marie Hilly at the age of 17. So they kind of kept in touch for a few years, three years, until she was 17, kind of more um, um, closer to a marrying age. I don't think anyone should be married at 17. <laughs> but, you know, this was like 1950, 1950s. So Frank was in the Navy. Um, they were married. Marie settled in Anniston to be close to her family and to Frank's family. Um she visited Frank in Long Beach in Boston when he was stationed there. And then he eventually came to live with Marie and Aniston after he was discharged from the Navy. Um, they liked this like small, sleepy Southern town. They both grew up in, they kind of knew everybody and they looked forward to raising a family there. Marie got a job as a secretary and Frank worked at Standard Foundry in the shipping department they had a lot of friends. They did like a poker night every Saturday. They they really kind of put roots down and seemed to be living the American dream. Frank was moving up in the company. Marie took time off when she became, she gave birth, excuse me, she gave birth to their oldest, Mike, and he was born in 1953. So this is 1953. This is kind of we're starting in 1953 and the book was it was a great book I tried to keep as many dates in track as I could so I could kind of create like a timeline mm -hmm. um so I will do my best to keep this timeline going because <clears throat> this is this is over a ne the next from 1953 over the next 30 years of Marie's life so they like I said their first son Mike was born in 1953 and at this time, Marie uh, had a good reputation as an efficient and reliable worker. She had no problem getting a job. She was always an executive secretary. Her typing skills were second to none. Um, and she was a hard worker and she was reliable. Like I said, she took a little bit of time off after Mike was born, but it wasn't long before she went back to work. However, the Hillies looked from the outside at this point cracks were beginning to form on the inside of the family um marie loved to spend money which if if you have money spend it i don't have a problem with spending money but the problem was marie, marie was spending more money than they had they were living beyond their means for sure yes she always wanted the best of everything, just like in childhood. It that that mentality kind of carried over to adulthood. She was always the best dressed, and not just quality wise. It was, um, she was the most fashionable at the barbecue. She was mm -hmm. always seemed to be. People always described Marie as being overdressed for every occasion. She always wanted to stand out and have the nicest things. Yeah, exactly. She always had her hair done. She always had her nails done, which I don't, there's not a problem with that if you can afford it. They had TV before everybody else. Mm -hmm. 
and they would have donuts on Sunday, have donuts for dinner and watch TV on Sundays. Right. Actually, Frank um, seemed like a pretty cool guy. And Mike said in the book, it was it was almost like this book was kind of um, from the author interviewed Mike. So it, it wasn't from his perspective, but the author got a lot of information from Mike. Mm-hmm. And Mike... It seemed cool, like having donuts on Sunday for dinner seemed they they really did seem like a really great family. You know, Frank yeah. really did love his family, and he was a great dad, and um, it seems like a great husband. So Marie wanted to live in the best neighborhood in Anniston. She wanted a new car every year. She wanted to really keep up with the Joneses, and pretty soon Marie's spending worried frank he got to a point where he was worried how he was going to pay the mortgage from month to month frank even told a friend quote marie is great at spending money she can spend more money than i can make but the friend recalled frank saying this with like a smile like a laugh like Mm -hmm. um and he was always described as someone who was just on the verge of laughing like he was an easy laugher so he's an easygoing guy you know, just a normal guy. As their marriage went on, they kind of stopped doing the poker nights and they really became involved in the Elks Lodge, um, which Frank really loved. Uh, They would do like a ladies night every Friday and they um, would like turn it into like a dinner hall and um, Frank would go there after work and, and at first he didn't really drink. Then as the years went on, Frank started to drink more and more at the Elks Lodge, um, before he came home. And then eventually seven years after Mike was born, along came Carol, actually named after her mother, Carol Marie. That would be their last child. They had Mike and Carol and, and they, that was all she wrote. So they were married for a very long time before shit started to really get crazy. In the 1960s, uh, Frank was going to the Elks Club more and more, and Marie didn't really like it. She would go and pick him up because he couldn't drive home because he was intoxicated, but she did it resentfully. Mm -hmm. Actually, one night, Frank was drunk, and Mike told this story Um, Because he went with his mother to pick up his father, Frank. And Marie went to pick him up. Mike went into the club to get him. Frank was drunk. He came out. He screamed uh, at Marie. And Marie was annoyed. She went to go get the car. And while Frank was waiting for the car, he threw himself on the ground next to the curb and just yelled, run me over, get it over with, put me out of my misery. Poor Frank. I, I I honestly felt really sad for Frank. It's it's a terrible story. It is. A friend from the club managed to wrestle him off the ground, but some witnesses that were there say they felt like Marie applied just a little bit of pressure to the gas before somebody picked him off the the street. Picked him up off the street. That's believable. Yeah. And this kind of surprised Frank, Frank's friends, because he was always described as someone who normally kept 
his shit together. He was a very private person. He was very, you know, kind of stoic, typical 1950s, 1960s Mm -hmm. dad, very stoic. Um, And he was really at this point starting to show signs of stress and worried his friends that maybe everything wasn't as it seemed. All right. So just briefly, Marie is a mother. She seemed to be a huge kind of pushover, especially with Mike. Um, she would threaten to, you know, spank them or ground them or whatever, and she'd never follow through. When Mike was a 12, his mother lost her temper and slapped him, and he looked her in the eyes and told her, quote, if you want to hurt me, you have to hit me harder than that. Jesus Christ. Yeah, I, that 12-year-old scares the shit out of me. I'm fucking terrified. Yeah. Um, And at that point... Mike kind of built up this, he called it like a psychological wall to kind of protect himself from Marie. And she had pretty big mood swings, like violent mood swings. So he just kind of built up this psychological wall and kind of distanced himself from her. So she, he, he didn't, he wasn't really affected by Marie at that point, like 12 and older. He would just kind of let it go in one ear and out the other. And he kind of kept most of his social life to himself. Carol, her daughter, however, Marie had very different standards for Carol. It seemed like Carol could not do anything right in Marie's eyes. Yeah. Their relationship seemed like night and day from her and Mike. Right. And But then there's also um, Marie trying to win... Carol's love or give in to her also kind of like her childhood for example um Carol wanted a motorcycle when she was a teenager so badly um her dad said no her her mom kind of said no but eventually uh, Marie bought her a motorcycle and she rode it yeah she rode it around the neighborhood it was her vehicle for a long time one thing about I noticed between Carol and Marie Carol was a tomboy and Marie was disappointed that her daughter was a tomboy she was the complete opposite of what marie had always been and i think marie had a hard time accepting carol for who she was she wanted to have a like quote-unquote stereotypical kind of girly girl daughter that she could dress up and do those sorts of things with Yes. And Carol was a tomboy. She played with sports with the boys in the neighborhood. She rode a motorcycle, which I'm not, you know, those are like kind of in the 50s, in the 60s. These are like stereotypical, like masculine things, you know? Yeah. It feels weird even talking about it now for us because I know that we don't care about gender norms. Like, you know, we just want people to do what they want to do. Yeah. Be who you want to be. Like, we don't subscribe to stereotypical gender norms at all but back then things like this would have been something that people would have noticed and would have probably talked about especially in a small town yeah and it was weird because from what I got what I inferred from the book is nobody really cared about Carol being a tomboy except for Marie like it wasn't a big scandal only to Marie and Marie was always hoping that Carol would kind of outgrow these tomboy phases. She would. Tomboy to tom man. 
Yeah. <laughs> yes. She would stop dressing in jeans. She would start wearing dresses. She would start dating boys. And Carol never really did. She was just who she was. It wasn't a phase. It was just her. Yes. And, um, you know, Marie was that, uh, she was that person who wanted to relive her youth through her daughter. Mm -hmm. And it absolutely infuriated her that she could not do that. She could not, one, control Carol. Carol was a very headstrong person. She was going to do what she wanted to do, and she didn't give a fuck uh, what Marie or anybody said. So at some point, Carol's sexuality came into question. In the book, it says that Carol's first sexual experience was with a girl. Um, so there was there was this I, I'm not gonna say that she was a lesbian because she also had boyfriends. She was at least bisexual. It was kind of awesome because Carol was very comfortable mm-hmm. outside of her mom. She seemed comfortable with her sexuality. Marie out and out thought she was a lesbian and hated it. Hated it. Hated that she was a lesbian. So Marie was also very jealous of the relationship Frank and Carol had. They were very close and Marie always felt like Frank took Carol's side and they, and she felt like they often teamed up against her. So now we're kind of getting into the, the strange things that Marie would start to do. So at this point it's, um, Mike is off in college. He's a sophomore in college Carol's in middle school. Um, Marie had started to use Frank's name in town with lenders. She had started to take out loans using Frank's um, good standing amongst the banks in town. Um, Mm -hmm. Frank and Marie were consistently at odds. That's a nice way of putting it. (laughs) They just weren't. They weren't doing well. And when, you know, Frank and Mike often golf, golf together and they would go see college games together. And it was one of these times that Frank reached out to Mike, which you could tell this is like 1960s, early 70s, you know, like toxic masculinity. You don't really talk about your feelings. You didn't really talk about this stuff as a man. Frank uh, told Mike that he had walked in on Marie having sex with her boss in their bed. Wait, he told Mike this? Yes. Why the okay. fuck would he tell Mike this? I, I I don't know. I don't know. Was this when Mike was in college or is this when Mike had already become a pastor? No, this is when Mike was in college. So... Oh my God. They... Frank had been... I started to become have like these short bouts of sickness like Mm -hmm. and it was like nausea and diarrhea and couldn't keep anything down and then he would get better so it was one of these days where he was feeling ill and he Mm -hmm. came home from work and he straight up caught Marie fucking her boss in their bed and he literally just turned around and walked out and drove around for hours 
Oh my god. And then came home and I am not on her side. I'm not trying to be mean to Frank. I just can't believe he talked to his son about that of anybody. It's just a crazy conversation to have even if your child's an adult to have with your child. I I So can't. I walked in on your mom having sex with her boss. I, I can't imagine. So this kind of went on. This, I mean, obviously they, and he told his son, Mike, you know, your mom and I aren't, we're not doing well. I don't, he, quote, I don't know what to do. So Mike was just kind of like, oh, I wish he just would have left. You know. But she had multiple affairs, right? Yes, she had multiple affairs. Multiple. Um, This is the only one that he caught her in, but she had multiple affairs. Um, so this kind of tension went on for two years. They stay together. I don't know why. Maybe it's the seventies. You just, that's what you do. I don't know. So in 1974, Frank ran into a friend on the street who asked if he was all right because he didn't look well. And Frank said he kept getting a fever and it would go away and then it would come back again. And the doctors couldn't figure out what it was. Uh, Frank, his health was becoming increasingly worse. There were more six days than there were healthy days. Um, but Marie, she was a doting wife by his side through it all. She would take him to the doctors. She would care for him at home. She made him comfortable. She just was the caring wife. What? She sounds so nice. She sounds so kind. Oh my gosh. What a great wife. Uh, honestly, if I walked into my spouse <laughs> effing somebody and then I got sick and they tried to take care of me, I'd be like, get the fuck away from me. <laughs> get the hell away from me. So in 1975, Frank, who was just north of 45 years old, he actually was so sick. He took a uh, burial insurance out on himself. He had a conversation with his sister, uh, who, whose name was Frida, which I love that name, by the way. Um, he told Frida, he's like, how much do you think it would cost to bury someone? She's like, I don't know, five, $5,000 or maybe he said that to Marie. I don't know. So Frank took out a $5,000 burial insurance on himself. That's oh how my God, sick. Why Frank? I, I feel I, like every, just every decision I just don't do that. It's just so weird for a guy in his mid forties, you know, and and that just goes to think maybe Frank knew he 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 wasn't doing well. Like he had a deeper feeling that really no one else knew. Um. So, the last time that Mike and Frank were supposed to get together to go golfing, uh, Marie called Mike and was like, "Hey, your dad can't make it. He's not feeling well." And uh, Mike was like, okay, let me know. He wasn't super worried because this had been going on for like three years. Like his dad had had, they, they seem stomach issues, like stomach mm-hmm. issues. Like maybe he had an allergy or an intolerance or, mm-hmm. or his diverticulitis. Probably, I don't definitely know. Definitely an intolerance to something. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so a couple weeks passed, um, Marie called the doctor. The doctor said, you know, take fluids and some aspirin and, um, it didn't get better. And then they told him to do something else. They brought him in. They couldn't find anything. He went home. So two weeks after he canceled the golfing trip, uh, Marie called Mike and said, Hey, I had to take your dad to the hospital because I found him disoriented in his pajamas in the front yard at 3:30 AM yesterday. So we're at the hospital and, um, 
you know, maybe you should come see him. And Mike was kind of shocked. He's like, what? You're in the hospital? This is just like a stomach bug. What's going on? Uh, so Mike and his fiance fly up to the hospital and they actually diagnose Frank with hepatitis because his liver was all out of whack and everything he was swollen. It was his internal organs were totally out of whack. While Frank was in the hospital, he told his sister Frida that Marie told him that Dr. Jones, his doctor, who had seen him since the early 70s with through the sickness, had told Marie that when he went home, she would need to give him shots, which everybody thought that was really weird. Mm-hmm. Like, why would your wife need to give you shots? Yeah. So, unfortunately, Frank never made it out of the hospital. He died in the hospital May 25th, 1975. So sad. Totally devastating to his family they had no idea he was as sick as he was he basically went into i think kidney failure um and he just fell asleep and never woke up marie received thirty one thousand one hundred forty dollars in life insurance on the show it talked about um mike had actually had his dad be his best man at his wedding because they were so close they were very close they were i would say they were more like friends uh once mike and frank once mike became an adult they were very very close it's so sad it it's frank seemed like a nice nice guy yeah he he seemed like a very good father genuine person just an all-around great guy so the years following frank's death were a roller coaster of strange events and behaviors from marie Um, she did a number of like weird, unnecessary, bizarre things. She started calling the police, um, about mystery intruders to her house. She called the police that she was getting mystery phone calls with heavy, heavy breathing on the other line. Strange notes left on her house. Yes. And what would happen is officers would come over and, Everyone always described Marie as a well-built woman, whatever the fuck that means. Um, I don't know. And there was one. Titties? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Um, Maybe she just had a nice body. I don't know. So there was one officer in particular. She, he would come over when she would call about an intruder or prowler or phone call. They started having an affair. Wait, one of the police officers? Yes. Oh my God. It's just, she has that booty. It won't quit. They, yes. These men cannot <laughs> stay away from her. She has like that, what is that golden, she has a glitter pussy. I think so because we looked up pictures of her and she was just like a, some broad. I would have never looked twice at her. Honestly, I thought she could have been just, you know, one of those women who um, serve gas station chicken strips. Yeah, she's nothing special until you look under the hood, I guess. I don't know. Wouldn't stand out in a crowd. She had a golden vulva. (laughs) I guess is what, I don't know, word on the street. I don't know. That was the rumor going around. (laughs) Yeah, so she did all kinds of weird stuff. She started taking out more loans. She would 
Mike would have a car and he'd say, oh, I, I, I think I'm going to get a new one. She's like, oh, I'll take over payments on your car. And then she'd never make the payments. She just. She's a scoundrel. She's a scoundrel. Total scoundrel. So here's where it it gets really dark. So at one point, Mike had gotten a job close to Anniston, Alabama, and him and his wife, now wife, um, move in with Marie in her house. His wife is pregnant. Marie's doing the cooking. His wife gets sick. She has the same symptoms Frank had. Um, oh my God. She doesn't get better. She has a miscarriage. So sad. Terrible. It's awful. It's despicable. So during this time, Lucille, blast from the past, Marie's mother is is also living with them, and they fight like cats and dogs. They fight. Carol and Marie fight. Everybody's fighting. Mike and his wife are like, we're out of here. We are fucking out of here. So they go get an apartment. Marie doesn't want them to leave. Marie's house mysteriously catches fire, burns down part of it burns down so they conveniently have to move in with mike and his wife then when her house is rebuilt she is supposed to move back in mike and his wife their apartment catches fire part of it mike and his wife have to move back in with marie how convenient that suddenly everything's on fire around her and then not only did marie's properties catch on fire her neighbors houses started to catch on fire so what i think marie was doing i think she was sneaking into her neighbor's homes and lighting fires in closets just for fun just for shits and giggles mostly shits just for shits and gigs honestly i she was the kind of person who thrived in the chaos yes exactly her spending was getting out of control she had like a a mounting debt at one point Calvin Robertson, the first guy who who kind of had this huge crush on her when she was 14, he's mm-hmm. married, mm-hmm. doing very well. He lives in San Francisco. She finds him, reaches out to him, tells him she has a brain tumor and she needs $3,000 to go get treatment in Atlanta. He gives it to her. Well, why wouldn't you? I mean, she has that glitter pussy. Wait, what is <laughs> glitter pussy? Yeah, she's a glitter pussy person. I can just picture her for some reason with like big hair and just throwing cigarettes into people's like open windows as she walks by and then the house is just blowing up behind her. That's exactly what she did. Yes, that's exactly. You described her to a T, to a fucking T. (laughs) Uh, So he sends her 3000. They keep this. She so what she did, she didn't just do this with Calvin. She did this with multiple men in town, most of them her bosses. She would start this love affair. She would taunt them and lure them with her glitter pussy. And then she would have sex with them. And then she would kind of say like, oh, well, I I love you, but I, I know that I could never be with you because you're married and it's a forbidden love. And I guess I'll just go be with this plain guy. I mean, we'll never have the love that you and I are going to have, but I, but I know you're never going to leave your wife for me. So I'll, I'm just going to go live this boring, mediocre life. By the way, I have a rare blood disease and I need $5,000 to um, live. So can you write me a check? So she did that with multiple men. How did people not realize like, oh, she doesn't have all of these weird diseases and she just has everybody's $5,000. I mean, it's a small town. 
So Calvin lived in San Francisco. Yeah, but what about all these other dudes that she's hooking up with and all these bosses that she's having an affair with? It just seems like her reputation would be trash. Well, it was, it was to a certain extent because she didn't just work at one job. She bounced around because she would be very good in the beginning, but then these personality uh, things would come out and she would get in arguments and then she'd eventually either quit or get fired because of this personality that she had. She caused chaos wherever she went. She she just caused chaos wherever. Everything she touched like turned to shit. It, it was terrible. Okay, so at one point she left Aniston and moved. Mike was living in Florida with his wife at the time. And she had left Aniston and went to live with Mike for three months in Florida. And this is important because this will, will come back to this time a little bit later. It's on the test. Write it down. I know there's a lot. It's so much like trying to cover a book in like an hour is, is, is crazy. All right. So this is where it really gets fucking wild. So three years after Frank's death, in 1978, Marie took out a life insurance policy on Carol for $25,000. And remember, Carol is her daughter. I know there's a lot of names going around. Carol is her daughter, her teenage daughter. So like, what the fuck? Yes. Is that not a red flag? I don't get it. Yes. All the alarm bells, red flags, it's like not good. So the following eight months... Carol is in and out of doctor's offices, in and out of hospitals. She had to quit school. She was so sick with this mysterious illness. Nausea, diarrhea, stomach cramps. She could not keep anything down. She was down to 85 pounds. She was 85 oh pounds. Um, that is terrifying. It, it was. And the whole time... Marie is like this doting mom, just like she was the doting <gasps> wife for Frank. She's the doting mom. She, uh, oh my God, she's so nice. She's, um, she's taking care of her. Amazing. She's so, that's so cool. Caring and hot. It, it's just, it was wonderful to read. So at, <laughs> at one point, Marie is so far in debt that she is telling people that, oh, I can't pay you. I'm, or, or just don't cash this check yet. Frank had some stocks. And I'm going to get them cashed out and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get some money. So Carol was like, hey, mom, I'm so sick. And Marie was like, all right, Carol, um, how about I buy you a new car? Like with the money from your dad's stocks. And Carol's like, awesome. So um, that'll totally make me feel better. Like I, you know, she's like quit school, couldn't work, lived on the couch, lived in bed. I, I mean, she was sick, sick. Yeah, 85 pounds. That's like terrible to think about a, a basically a young adult being that small that's tiny tidy yes and also what marie kind of orchestrated in carol's life is she, she made it so carol solely depended on marie for everything mm-hmm. her food her money everything she was totally isolated from everything they uh, ended up moving in together and and carol Loved her mom, but didn't really like her mom. She felt like she... They were very different people. Yeah, she felt trapped. Um, So she has this idea of this car, and uh, Marie's like, okay, we're going to go down and get it. I ordered it. It's ready for you. On the way down there, Marie... Carol was getting sick, and Marie said, here, I have some Tylenol. And she um, 
or here, take some Maalox or whatever Pepto-Bismol. So she put it in. Mm-hmm. For some reason, she poured it from the Maalox bottle into a Tylenol bottle with some stuff in it and it fizzed. And then Carol took it and got violently ill and they had to turn around. They couldn't get the car that day. That happened twice. Twice. What's so awful about this is just how much kids trust their parents. It's honestly devastating. She didn't think like, why is this bubbling like a witch's cauldron? That's strange. Yes. And at one point during this time, Mike had confronted her about one of the cars that she leased or took over the payments for him and then never made the payment. So the creditors were coming after him. He's like, we need to get money for this car. Like you can't just not pay for this car. And she's like, okay, okay, we'll do it in the morning. Made him dinner. He got violently sick and he couldn't, couldn't hunt down the money. It, it, it was just weird. So Carol eventually goes to the doctor hundreds of times, hundreds. She got so sick of going to the doctor. She hated going. She didn't believe them. She didn't trust them. She hated going. It got so bad that the doctors started accusing her of, they started saying that this isn't a real sickness. This was psychological. Yeah, they thought that she, not not even maybe purposely, but mm-hmm. it was something in her mind making her think that she was sick. Yes. Because they couldn't figure out what was going on. Yeah. So they put her in a psychiatric hospital and she was under lock and key. Um, her only visitor was her mother And at this time in the hospital, Marie told Carol, oh, I met somebody in the lobby who had the same thing. Because at this point, there was numbness in Carol's legs, feet, hands, and arms. Um, So she couldn't walk. She couldn't, had no motor function. Um, And Marie said, oh, hey, I met somebody in the lobby and they gave me this medicine and a syringe and they said, it's going to help you. She administered shots to Carol in this psych ward, basically. This is like a fucking horror movie. It's insane. It's insane. It's so scary. And think about poor Carol, who's like, I really am sick. And you guys think that I'm delusional or something. And now I'm in this psych ward. And the only person who's being kind to me is my mother, who's giving me mysterious shots and weird witch's brew medicine. What a fucking nightmare. That's exactly how she felt. She felt the only person, her only link to the outside and the only person she could trust was her mother who was giving her these mysterious shots and she was not getting better. In fact, she was getting worse. God, this is awful. Yeah. So the head doctor at this psych ward, I mean, this is so inner, it's such a long story. It's so convoluted. Basically, to make a long story short, Carol ended up calling a friend. Her name was Eve. And Eve, at one point months ago, had witnessed Marie giving Carol a shot in their apartment. And all the while, Frida, Frank's sister, had had a conversation with Mike and said, Hey, Carol's very sick. This is kind of strange. My mother has passed away, which was kind of strange. Marie's mother passed away, which is kind of strange. And they all kind of had the same symptoms. Did you ever see your mom give your dad a shot? And Mike was like, I think she gave him shots. So then 
everything kind of started to come together for Mike. He kind of had this like epiphany, like, oh, shit. Because of Frida. I think Frida was a big driving force in she was a sleuth. She was an amateur sleuth and was like, okay, something's fucking fishy here. She was absolutely a dog with a bone. And she was going to um, avenge her brother. Uh, yeah. um, so Mike kind of put this together. So, And somehow, somehow the universe made it happen where Mike and Eve had a conversation and Mike found out that Marie had been giving Carol shots mm-hmm. and Mike called the psych ward and talked to the the head doctor and said, do not let my mother see my sister. Do not let her see her. I think there's something strange going on. So the psych ward doctor told Marie, Hey, she's not getting any visitors and we can't, there, there's nothing that we can see psychologically wrong with her because when Marie had checked her in, she told her, oh, her personality's changed. She's depressed. She's been lashing out at people. She's totally different. So Marie had kind of set a precedent for this mental illness, maybe this bipolar, maybe schizophrenia, maybe depression, maybe whatever. Um, so the doctor said, you know, we can't really find anything. And the only thing that we really seem that might even be close to this is could be possible. I don't even know how it's possible is heavy metal poisoning. Mm-hmm. And Marie was like, I'm taking my daughter out of here right now. So she, she managed to get Carol out of there. She basically dragged her out of there cause she couldn't walk. She was in a wheelchair. Um, they stayed at a hotel for one night. Carol was so sick. She couldn't even go home. All she wanted to do was go home. She couldn't go home. Her mom brought her to the hospital, another hospital, not a psych hospital. When I say Carol's life was saved with like with minutes to spare, minutes to spare, it is not an exaggeration. Carol was in this hospital. She did not want to be in a hospital. And this was the first time and I am, this is kind of a like, ooh, ooh, she saw a woman doctor. And for the first time she said it, she felt like it was someone who listened to her. Mm-hmm. So she, she was at this hospital. There was a woman who was kind of taking her seriously. And sh- she was, she was on her deathbed. She was on her deathbed. She had at the, at this point, she had no feeling in her hands and her feet at all so scary and the only person there for her was her mom by her bedside so mike called the doctor they found out what hospital she was at and she was like and he was like do not let my mother near her and then right at the same time marie's fraudulent past of writing bad checks and aniston came back to haunt her when she was about to administer the fatal dose of arsenic to Carol, two detectives from Aniston showed up at the hospital, asked her to step outside of the room and arrested her. If it wasn't for those two detectives, Carol probably wouldn't have survived. God, that's terrifying. Isn't it? So, and so then Mike was in contact oh. with a doctor. Thank God she wrote so many hot checks. Uh, seriously. <laughs> 
It was a fraudulent check that she wrote for Carol's furniture, actually. She bought Carol furniture for her apartment, and it was that $2,000 check that got her arrested and quite literally saved Carol's life. Oh, my God. So Carol uh, was laying in, in, in this hospital bed. Her brother, Mike, ended up coming up. He talked to the doctors. He's like, we need to check for arsenic. I think my mom killed my dad. She might have killed other people um so they checked carol's i guess a way to test for arsenic poisoning without actually testing is you can you get this kind of line on your nails your Mm -hmm. toenails and your fingernails and she had it yeah she had it it. leaves lines on your nails yeah so she um they figured out was arsenic she did not die she made a she had a lot of physical therapy um, but she she survived within minutes. She was within minutes of dying. I'm pretty sure that Marie had the syringe in her purse and was going to give it to her. Insane. I'm sure. I'm sure because they were because the last hospital had already brought up the heavy metal poisoning, mm-hmm. which means that she would have been tested for different like things in her blood. Yes. And so I think Marie's method was to get the person in the hospital and then do the doses there so it was kind of under the guise of the of the of the victim being in the hospital yeah kind of like oh they're they're on your watch now yeah you were supposed to be taking care of them and they died when they were here it's almost like having an alibi yes so carol survived they kept marie separate from her she marie was in jail so while marie was in jail on the bad check charges they processed uh carol's blood and found out that she was in fact given arsenic and she had a lethal limit in her in her body and they charged marie with attempted murder of her own daughter plus so awful the check charges so even though she was considered a flight risk she was given bail. She made bail. She fucking made bail. Actually, it's that glitter pussy strikes again. It is. And you know how I know it is and how you knew it is is because one of her old bosses, one of her ex-lovers who couldn't get enough of the <laughs> glitter puss, fucking wrote her bail for her. Why would you do this? Oh my god. Crazy. Like $10,000. So she was let out on bail and she immediately Faked her own kidnapping. Because that's what you do. Yes. She faked her own kidnapping. She broke into her aunt's house. She stole woman's clothing, a car, an overnight bag, left a note that said, don't even try to find me. Don't follow me. Don't come find her. I'll burn everything down. And she was in. I've been kidnapped. <laughs> she was She was in the wind after that. Oh, my God. And if this was a play, this would be the intermission. Why would it? an attempted murderer be out on bail why okay i don't don't know why okay so the beginning of the story is sad but the end of the story is freaking weird wild and crazy yes all right so robbie hannon met john homan in florida they married and they moved to new hampshire but robbie was actually fucking Marie Hilly. Dun dun. Um, 
All right. So remember when I said that the three months that she went to live with her son in Florida after Frank died? Yes. Part of the test. I remember okay. it. I wrote it down in my notebook. So it's a Nancy Drew notebook. <laughs> so Mike said during that time, Marie said she got a job, but she also would stay out very late or not even come home at all for over the three months that they were there. So that three months while they were there, she met John Homan in Palm Beach, Florida. Of course she did. And she, of course she did. just like Calvin, just like all of her bosses, she kept him on the line for a, late, a rainy day. So now, now it was time to activate John Homan. Imagine her little black book. Strange, right? So, but here's the thing, though. She had so much foresight. You know, just after Frank died, she went to stay with Mike. She had so much foresight to pre-change her name to Robbie Hannon. So she introduced herself as Robbie Hannon when she met him all that time before. Like three years prior. Three years prior. Yes. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yes. That's so fucking... It's insane. Weird and scary. It's insane. Anytime we leave town, we're just going to use fake names. I'm sticking with Steve. You can use whatever name you like. Oh, I don't know. I I want something. I want something. Mysterious and sexy. That's why I went with Steve. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty mysterious and sexy. All right. So Robbie and John, uh, Robbie Hannon and John Homan, they moved to New Hampshire. Um, This (laughs) is 1979. Um, so it's about, it's the same year that she tried to poison Carol and this is 1970. Oh my God. Yeah. She just had a busy year. <laughs> she tried to kill her daughter, got arrested for hot checks, changed her identity, got married and moved twice. Yes. So Jesus, 1979 to roughly 1982. So this is almost three years. It's two Mm -hmm. years because it was pretty close to 1980. Robbie, aka Marie, she lived a very normal life with John in Marlowe, New Hampshire, which was a very small, small, quaint little New Hampshire town. Um, She Mm -hmm. worked at the Central Screw Company in Keene, which was about 20 minutes away. It was a little bit bigger town. It probably had the bigger shopping, a little bigger companies, kind of all these out lying small towns everyone kind of went into Keene to work that was the hub yes that was the hub of a bunch of small towns and I feel like somehow it's fitting she works at a screw company but I can't figure out the joke or the pun now I mean it but I'll I'll circle back it was serendipitous for sure what I find most interesting is in her new life as Robbie she never once poisoned anyone never once she like shed that entire entire person she she just shed that person their habits their their speech path just everything she shed everything about marie i think she had to i think she had to in order to start just like to keep the character whole for herself to be that character yeah i i don't that's i find that very interesting because i do think that marie was a very opportunistic person and i do think she hurt people in her life uh, because she needed money but uh, but 
also because I think she just wanted, she was fucking bored. I think the first half had a lot to do with wanting things. Mm -hmm. And I think, like we said, she thrived in the chaos. She was only comfortable in the chaos. And I think in the second half that she just really could not handle the stability and normalness that she was living. I mean, she lived a very, very different life in New Hampshire. They shared a car. They lived in like a one bedroom cabin out in the middle of nowhere. Nothing fancy. Um, however, she did always still dress kind of above, you know, overdressed for the occasion, even working. Um, but it, it was very different. I'm, I am surprised that she didn't um, poison people in her second life. Um, however, one thing that was very different is she had invented an identical twin who lived in Tyler, Texas. <gasps> like her uncle. Yes. Huey and Louie. Yes. And Dewey. And <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so her. The duck twins. Woo. Okay. So her. Um, her. <laughs> that's not DuckTales. Anyways. Uh, <laughs> Wait. They were Huey, Louie and Dewey on DuckTales. Oh, were they? The little babies. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I did. I did make a connection there. Okay. You did it. You did it. All right. So her, so so what happened with her and her identical twin that lived in Tyler, Texas? Okay. So her twin, her name was Terry Martin, and mm-hmm. she lived in Tyler, Texas. She was uh, apparently married or supposedly married to a military career military man who was abusive, and they were ending a marriage. And um, she had moved around all over the country because of this military career, and they were getting ready to inherit a huge amount of money from their grandfather who had raised them as identical twins growing up. Oh, how lucky. Right. Okay. Right. So Robbie, here she is living in New Hampshire. She's doing just fine. She could have totally lived under the radar forever, forever. She could have lived a nice, ordinary life, but she couldn't fucking help herself. She couldn't fucking help help herself so suddenly Robbie is going around work telling John her husband telling her friends at work at the screw factory she has a rare blood disease she doesn't have long to live what yes and she needs to go to Tyler Texas where her twin sister is to get treatment for this rare blood disease that she has Oh, I didn't know Tyler, Texas had such a good rare blood disease hospital. That makes sense, though. Okay. It's notorious. It's renowned. (laughs) Renowned. (laughs) So she goes off to Tyler, Texas to get this treatment that's going to save her life and visit her twin, and they're so close, and yada, yada. John gets a call from Terry Martin. (gasps) The twin. The twin that says, John... I have bad news, but Robbie's dead. What? And, oh, no. And John's like, that's so sad. What? And, <laughs> and Terry goes on to tell him, Robbie told me she wants us to meet. She wants us to get to know each other. She wants us to live life to the fullest. She wants us to go to parties. She wants us to go out to dinner. She wants me to come to her town in New Hampshire, where she's lived. She wants me to meet the people of Marlowe. She wants me to meet the people at the Central Screw Factory. She wants me to come there 
and to meet all of her friends. Don't forget about that screw factory for sure. Yes. This is a fucking soap opera. This is, I'm pretty sure, a whole season of Days of Our Lives. It's wild. So while Robbie, a.k.a. Marie, was in Texas, she dropped 30 fucking pounds and she went to the salon and bleached her hair blonde. So when she shows up in Marlowe, New Hampshire, she's 30 pounds thinner and she is fucking Marilyn Monroe. Okay, I'm going to reverse this after quarantine. I'm gaining 30 pounds and my hair is now brown because I haven't gotten it done in so long. And I'm going to say that I am my own twin. I like it. The drinking problem. Look a little different, a little edgier, a little meaner. I like it. Get your eyebrow okay. pierced or something. Really sell it. Ooh, that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'll get a forehead tattoo that says glitter pussy. Yeah. Yes. No, get one right under your eye that just says GPP. <laughs> Tiny one? Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's classier. That is classier. Okay. Um, So Terry shows up in town and she... This is fucking wild. Like, I can't even believe she had the fucking ovaries to do this like I can't I don't even understand what is like going on through someone's head okay so she <laughs> this is so bizarre. she comes back from Texas and she's like hey John I'm Terry <laughs> I'm so sorry about your loss for your loss and she comes with her these letters that Robbie supposedly sat down and wrote her before she died about how they should like live their life to the fullest and get to know each other and yada, yada, yada. So what this fucking bitch does, she goes around town everywhere that Robbie had been and is like talking to these people that knew Robbie. She's basically listening to them tell her how much they loved Robbie. Which is her. Yes. And also her husband is like, oh, okay. Okay, so... He, you you are the twin sister. This makes sense. I believe it. He 100%... Great. <laughs> hook, line, and sinker. He 100% believed it. I don't want to be mean to him, but just like... He, um... Could, wouldn't you be able to tell? Okay, so what happened was, is she changed... Um, when Robbie lived in New Hampshire... They would go run errands together because they had one car. And usually Robbie would wait in the the truck. And John would go and do all the errands. She wouldn't do any of them. Um, they had some a couple friends. And she basically read all the time. She was kind of considered antisocial um, outside of work. But Terry, she was thinner. She smoked more. Uh, she drank more. She was funnier. She was more outgoing. So, um, it was like a blondes have more fun situation is what happened. Exactly. You know, but you know what? 50% of the people bought it and 50% of the people called bullshit. And that's why I decided to name the drink after New Hampshire, because these people of New Hampshire, they were like, I fucking smell a fish or something's fishy. I smell a rat, whatever the fuck the saying is. Okay. You'll get it. You'll get that saying one of these days. They were like what are you doing Robbie they're like we know that you're not your own twin this is so fucking stupid yeah it was very strange so Robbie and Terry told everybody in town they were born in New York but they had a southern (laughs) accent Robbie and Terry (laughs) so and Marie 
<laughs> they all said it. Yeah. So so Robbie's dead. Terry and John actually go <laughs> to the local newspaper and write an obituary for Robbie that goes out in the paper. It's it's crazy. So the people start to um, get very suspicious. And mm-hmm. the, it first starts off with the women at the Central Screw Factory. And they're like, that is Robbie. And why is she acting like, she, why did she essentially kill herself off and come back as a twin? They're like, I've seen this episode of As the World Turns. Screw me once, shame on you. That's our motto here at the Screw Factory. <laughs> Precisely. Uh, and that is a direct quote from the book. Um, <laughs> so they start doing some investigating on their own. They start calling around Tyler, Texas. Like in the obituary, it said that her body was donated to science at a, some museum. So they looked at the museum. They, it didn't exist, obviously. Why even add these details that you could easily check? I don't know. It said that she was a member of a um, Catholic church in Tyler, Texas. Also didn't exist. The Sacred Heart Catholic Church didn't exist. So they were getting very suspicious. Well, then word started to get around town because here Robbie had told her twin, Terry, before she died, live it up, go have dinner, go to parties. So she all of a sudden was going around town and people were like, uh your sister died last week and now you're here partying and living with her husband and totally normal yes and it seemed that her brother-in-law and her had a very close relationship that wasn't it was just strange it was very strange it's almost like they had been married for three years exactly so how it all unwound is of all places the fucking newsstand guy the newsstand guy so the 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 small town newsstand guy that everybody went on their lunch break to get a newspaper or whatever happened to run into i think the twin terry came into the newsstand he's like hey what's up robbie and she's like i'm not robbie robbie's dead i'm terry her twin sister and he's like that's weird okay why are you doing that robbie (laughs) um a month later and a seasoned detective comes in and this newsstand guy's like, hey, there's something funny going on around here. Have you heard about this like Robbie, Terry, twin thing situation? And the detective's like, no, I haven't actually. I'm, you know, I, I, I have some free time. Maybe I'll look into it. What's the details? So he started with the obituary and her name and he looked into it and there was nobody that ever existed. There was no IRS record. There was no school record. There was no, there was no record of this person ever existing ever. And as a seasoned detective, he was like, okay, that's definitely suspicious. That to me sounds like it's somebody on the run. So at first he thought she was like an infamous member of some, uh, like, uh, mob. I think the Irish mob or something. Yeah. He was hoping it was like a real juicy get yes so they did some surveillance he pulled in some state troopers they 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 tried to match her description it didn't match so he's like okay back to the drawing board well maybe she's like this this other lady that's on the run for drugs that's like most wanted or whatever they did an id match it didn't work so he's like who is this late who is this fucking lady i know she's hiding something so he ended up bringing her in 
and she sang like a bird. She said, I'm Audrey Marie Hilly from uh, Anniston, Alabama. I am accused of poisoning my daughter, but I didn't do it. I have some bad check charges that I, I ran from. So um, he contacted the FBI who was involved because because she was on the run. And um, he got in contact with the detective who had been working on the case in Anniston. And they brought her to Aniston and they tried to break her and she wouldn't break. She never admitted to killing. And at this point, they had charged her with Frank's murder because they had um, exhumed, his body. exhumed his body because of what happened with Carol. So she was not only charged with attempted murder for her daughter, Carol, but murder of her husband, Frank, plus all the um, fraudulent check charges and stuff. So they bring her back to Aniston. They put her on trial uh, they basically poke holes in her story, where she, why she was giving shots, where she got the shots, what the shots were for. She was convicted of murdering her husband and attempted murder of her own daughter. She received life in prison plus 20 years. And um, she went to jail and um, she never confessed to the murder of her husband she never confessed to attempted murder of her daughter and she was in prison for I think a good amount of time a couple years and then they started doing this furlough program which was a um you know go out for for 48 hours and if you have good behavior you can go out for 48 hours and you come back I don't know what fucking possessed the warden to give her furlough. I do. Glitter pussy. Oh, that's right. Glitter pussy. <laughs> I forgot about that. Strikes again. The Strikes again. GPP got her hypnotized. Um, <laughs> or the GP. So she was given a furlough. And for the first several times, she did come back. And then she went on a furlough for a weekend. And it, here's the thing. John stuck by her side the entire time the husband who she tricked into thinking she was a twin she had stayed married to her yes she admitted to everything and he stayed married oh to her my God. he actually moved from new hampshire to aniston and yeah. they would stay they would get together on a furlough and then they would um you know fuck or whatever and then go to the waffle house and then she'd go back to jail well the last furlough she said, hey, I'm going to go visit my parents' graves at the cemetery, and um, I'll meet you at the Waffle House. And John was like, okay, I believe you. And uh, Yeah, and then he was at the Waffle House, and she didn't show, so he called the police, and the, you know, she, basically, she escaped, and it, I think this was in February, so it was pretty harsh in, um, mm -hmm. in the area, and she was on the run for three days until they found her disoriented and hypothermic. And it, she truly came full circle for some reason. Someone who uh, was able to elude the FBI for years. She didn't get more than five miles out of town. And she ended up on somebody's porch in Blue Mountain, a mile from her childhood home. 
and she was muddy and bloody and disoriented. Like I said, hypothermic. They called the ambulance. They they took her in and she eventually died of cardiac arrest. 1987, I believe. Oh my God. And that is a twisted, wild and crazy, murderous, fraudulent, arsonist tale of Audrey Marie Hilly. It's a wild ride. It, it, who fakes their own death and then comes back as an identical twin? I know. I know a lot of people probably know this story, but I feel like for obvious reasons, usually the true crime shows focus on the first half, the poisoning half, but the second half of her life is weirder than the first half. I have never heard of anybody in real life pretending to be their own twin. I've literally only heard of that on soap operas. I, I'm speechless. I am quite literally speechless. And for me, who adds, like <laughs> Tiffany says, 20 extra words in a sentence that don't need to fucking be there, it's insane for me to be speechless. I just don't understand. My thing is, she was she was under the radar. She was surviving. She was thriving, even. She could have gotten away with it, but she couldn't get out of her own way. No, it, it, it's 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 a self-sabotage that is just wild to me. And to invent like a twin to come. Okay, so you want to get out of this boring New Hampshire life and you want to move on to something bigger, better, richer, whatever. Kill yourself off and move on. Why come back as a twin? And Blondes have more fun. I, I guess. I guess she just wanted <laughs> to see. I guess she just wanted to go to her own funeral, I guess. I don't know. She did a lot of shit that you can't explain. I mean, trying to murder your own kid and murdering your own husband. About as low as you can get. Honestly. it. But you did a great job. You did a great job telling her story. Thank you. It was a little rough reading a book and then not recording for, for so long. It was... We came back with a bang. <laughs> we came back with a big story. We came back with a big story. Uh, I hope you liked it. I hope you followed along to the very end. We appreciate so many listeners. We have... Do you know we have like 47 states? Listeners mm-hmm. in 47 states. I've noticed that. I'm. This one's dedicated to Alabama. This one is dedica- dedicated to Alabama and New Hampshire because. And New Hampshire. Alabama, they have that southern charm. And New Hampshire, you take no fucking bullshit. You saw right through that bleach blonde weirdo that showed up and tried to tell everybody she was a twin. Just insane to me. (laughs) Anyways, we hope you enjoyed this. We are glad to be back, and we're looking forward to getting on a a continuous recording and uploading schedule. We will be back. We are looking forward to spooky season coming up. We cannot even stand it. Mm -hmm. We have some great... We have some great shows in the works. So uh, even though this was... A little bit longer than usual, a little bit rougher than usual. Uh, please come back for more. Always come back for more. Yes, because who you can't resist this this glitter puss. <laughs> we appreciate you so much, listeners. And on that note, <laughs> don't forget to love yourself, lock your doors, and light some sage. Cheers to that. I love it.